Fantastic. Good evening. <clears throat> do you mind if I kind of just expedite the time here this evening? And um, do you mind if we just get straight into the Word? Is that okay? <clears throat> so if you want to open up your Bibles with me very quickly to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1. And we'll begin there. Oh, I tell you what, I feel like preaching tonight. <laughs> 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1. This is um, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Elijah. You see, I like Elijah because there was not a mediocre bone in his body. I like Elijah because he was not apathetic. He was not lackadaisical. He was a man of faith. In, in fact, his name, Elijah, actually meant, my God is Jehovah. He was unashamedly. He was undignified in his, his approach. This brother wore camel hair and ate locusts. This, this brother was a bad brother. He was a wild man, a bit like my brother Dave down here. And I want to kind of just pull apart this chapter here and kind of really bring it alive for you. So if you've got your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 19 goes a little something like this. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had also executed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel was the leader of this nation. And Jezebel was kind of not a nice kind of lady. In fact, she pretty much tried to do away with the house of God. She pretty much broke down all the altars of God and was trying to teach the, the, the people to move away from God into more of a secular society. Here was a female leader of a nation trying to pull the people away from God. And so what we have here is we have Ahab. Ahab was her husband. Now Ahab was kind of a little weak boy. Allowed, allowed his wife to pretty much have total reign over what was going to happen. And he just allowed her evil to continue to move through the entire Jewish nation. And what had happened is this. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Now what Elijah did was this. He basically went up the mountain and said, Hey, listen, you get all your prophets of Baal all these evil prophets, and you call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of my God, the God that answers by fire, he's the one true God. So what they did was they called on their God all day and all night, they even cut themselves, hoping that their God would hear their pleas and their cries. But nothing happened. Then Elijah called on the name of his God, poured water all over the sacrifice, dug a ditch, and made it as wet as possible so that when his God answered by fire, it was a consuming fire that licked up all the water and the whole nation then decided that Elijah's God was God. But then what Elijah did was this. He was a wild boy. He was not a girly man. He was a wild man. So what he did was he grabbed all of these 800 prophets by the hair, took them down by the river and executed them all. Now this ticked. Jezebel off because they were his boys so Jezebel got so mad that this is what she said she said then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying 
so let the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. In other words, basically Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, you think you're bad? You think you're anointed? You think you're God's man? Well, let me tell you something, Elijah, I am going to kill you. In 24 hours, I'm going to bring you down. Now, here's the thing. Here we have a woman threatening a mighty man of God who had just executed 800 prophets. This guy was no weakling. This guy was tough. He was rugged. Not a mediocre bone in his body. And he was a man that lived the word of God. So I'd like to see his response, wouldn't you, to this woman? Let's see what he does. And when he saw that, Excuse me. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. When he heard the threat, he picked up his little skirt and he ran. What is wrong with this man? A threat from one woman caused him to run, in fact, 113 kilometers in the opposite direction from where God wanted him. A threat and intimidation. Isn't that interesting? He arose and ran for his life and went to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judea, and left his servant there. Listen to what he does then. Then he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat under a broom tree. And listen to what he said then. Then he said, and he prayed that he might die. This brother's now suicidal from the threat from a woman. Any brother know what this brother's kind of feeling like? (laughs) And it goes like this. And then he says, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no longer better than my father's. Here's this guy who was just massacred, 800 prophets of Baal, yet he can't stand up to one woman, and now he's praying that he might die. He's become suicidal. Now, here's the thing. When I was younger, and I used to preach this thing, I was was really mad at Elijah. I thought, "What what is this weakling doing? But you know what? I've actually since learned that there is some stuff that will hit you that actually makes you feel like you want to die. I, I, I don't know how, how many people in this room right now are actually willing to be honest with you, but life can throw you some curveballs, right? Life can throw you some stuff. And, and now I actually, I can kind of relate to what Elijah is actually going through. But let me read on and then I'll pull this apart. Then as he lay... And slept under a broom tree. Suddenly an angel came and touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Now now here's the thing. Even though he said he wanted to die, you know he actually didn't really want to die. Because if he wanted to die, he would have stayed where Jezebel was because she was going to kill him. (laughs) So you can want to die, but (laughs) really... We actually want to live. And verse 9, let me just go down here. In verse 9, it says this. And there he went into a cave. Everyone say cave. He went into a cave and spent the night there. And behold, listen to this, the word. Everyone say word. The word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing so far away from where I called you? What are you doing so far away from your destiny? What are you doing out here in a cave? Why have you backed up into a corner? 
Why have you started to downsize the business? Why have you started to retreat instead of advance? What's going on here? What happened to you, Elijah? What are you doing? And listen, when God asks a question, he's actually not after information. It's like, Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. He's trying to get Adam and Elijah to figure out, do you know where you are? Do you know how far away you are from the call of God? What are you doing here? And he said, listen what he said. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. But the children of Israel, man, they've forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed all your prophets. And I alone am left. They seek to take my life. Let me tell you about depression. Depression will push you back into a corner where you, where you start to isolate yourself and you start to feel alone. They did a worldwide survey. And see, I work with teenagers. And so I studied out loneliness. And you know what they found? I actually thought, because I used to hear teenagers all the time complaining about loneliness. But here's the thing. You know who the most lonely people in the, on the planet are? The most lonely people on the planet are this. Divorced men with kids. Because divorced females tend to sometimes find some social networks that they can connect with. But sometimes the men, maybe for some strange reason, tend to isolate themselves. Especially, I'm, I'm, I'm talking now to the kids that have a dad's really be cognizant, really be aware of what's happening. Then what goes on, and he says this, he's alone, he prays that he might take his life, and then the Lord said, listen to what the Lord says in verse 11, go out, go out, go out, and stand on the mountain. Get out of this cave. Get out of this place of self-pity and go and stand on a mountain where I can give you some vision back. Go stand on a high place. And listen to what, and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, a still small voice. A still, a still, a still small voice. That's what I want to talk to you about here this evening very quickly I don't want to spend too long on this but that's Elijah's cave experience do you mind if I just share with you mine when I when I was in high school I was the fastest in Queensland for the 100 200 and 400 meter sprint events I ran 10.6 for the 100 21.8 for the 2 and 48 flat for the 4 I was on my way to the Olympic Games world junior titles then at 17 years of age, towards the end of my high school, I got hit by an incurable disease called ulcerative colitis. Knocked me right out. I lost 20 kilos in one month. Went down to 55 kilos. Got placed on a disability pension. Told I'd never be able to walk or never be able to, sorry, um, run or compete or have a career or work again. I spiralled into this place where I was like borderline depression. And then at 22 years of age, a still small voice came to me. A word came to me, and the word was this. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And when that word came to me, I got so filled with vision and insight. I believe the Lord wanted me to start a youth center. But here's the thing, I had no money. In fact, 
No, I'm sorry, I'm lying. I had $2. How do you build a youth center with $2? You follow the plans and pursuits of God. God told me to go to some owners of a large warehouse, about maybe three uh, times the size of this room that we're in right now. And you know what he said to me? He said, go and tell them that you want this warehouse for free. So I went and did that. Here's the deal. How how many people knows, knows that God talks crazy talk? He does. He talks crazy talk because God is not sensual. He doesn't deal with senses. God is spiritual. God talks crazy talk. Why? Because God will, God will actually call a prisoner free. He'll call a bound man loose. He'll call a weak man strong. God talks crazy. So what happens? He said, go, go and ask these people. They get, you know what? I asked them and they gave it to me rent free for six months. I then went, went and raised funds through government grants, business sponsorship, put on large youth events, turned it into a house of hope for young people. One young Australian of the year in 1998 for Queensland Community Service, and then schools started asking me to come in and share my story. I'm at a point in my life right now where I speak in over 300 high schools, around about 100,000 people every single year, work with first 15 rugby teams, coach them on mental toughness and discipline. Right now, I feel like I'm living my dream. But if you were to go back to when I was 22, when I was in a cave, I weighed 55 kilos, I was taking 16 tablets, today and I was suffering with pain 24-7. Here's the deal. It was the voice of a threat that pushed Elijah into that cave. It was a voice of a threat that pushed me into a cave where I felt like there was no hope left. But you know what? It was a voice of a promise that brought me out. (laughs) And I got to tell you, you have a promise from God. You have a word from God. If you don't know what it is, let me give it to you. The Bible says that you're the head and not the tail. That you're above and not beneath. That you're more than conquerors through Christ. Oh, somebody. Here's the deal. God said that you're capable of doing more than what you can ask or think or imagine. In fact, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered in the heart of man what God has prepared for those He loves. Here, let me break it down for you like this. You see... I travel into high schools, and I've got to tell you this, so I, sometimes I get into a little bit of trouble. Yeah, I get into a little bit of trouble from teachers who don't like what I say. In fact, I had one guy come up to me one day, shake his finger in my face, and tell me this. He said, Glenn, I think what you do is cruel. I said, what do you mean? He said, you can't go around giving all these young people hope. I said, What? He said, you can't go around giving all these young people hope. I said, why? He said, because Glenn, what if they fail? I was like, give me a break. What if they succeed? (laughs) And I got to tell you, I get between 50 to 150 emails every single week telling me, students telling me about how they've used my principles and godly principles to actually go out and actually live a life that is so far above anything they could have asked or dreamed or imagined. And here's what, now now here's the point I want to make. Here's the deal. Um, I know that on the way to your dream, I know that on the way to the, the God dream, the God purpose that he's placed in your heart, I know that on the way to your dream, you will encounter failure. You know how I know that? Because guess what? Failure and disappointment are actually a part of the journey. It's not your end game, but it's actually a part of the experience that you may go through. 
Now, now, here's the deal. Has anyone ever had someone say this to them? And I pray it's not too many people here in this room right now. But has anyone ever had someone say to them, oh, um, when you go and share your dream, of your vision for what you want to do in life, has anyone ever had someone say, oh, listen, that's really good, but, you know, listen, honey, um, I just don't want you to get um, disappointed. Has anyone ever had someone say that, 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 that to them? Interesting. You know what my theory is on that? My theory is on that? Here's my theory. The, the reason why people don't want you to get disappointed is because they haven't learned to deal with their own disappointment. And so they think that if I can't deal with my disappointment, then there's no way in the world you're going to deal with yours. Let me tell you something. Here's what I want you to do. When you fail, listen to me very carefully, and I don't want anyone to miss this. When you fail on the way to your dream, on the way to your your purpose on the way to where God wants you. When you fail, when you get disappointed, when things don't go, and when you make a mistake and things don't go the way that you planned, here's what I want you to do. Do this. Pick yourself back up, dust yourself off, and try again. But Glenn, but Glenn, what if I fail twice? What if I'm on the way to my dream and I fall down twice? Okay, listen. If you fall down twice on the way to your dream, then my advice would probably slightly change. Probably something more like this. And if you really gave it your best shot now, if you really gave it, my advice would change slightly. It'd be more something more like this. Pick yourself back up, dust yourself off, and try again. Because what if I fail three times? Three strikes and you're out. They say, listen, okay, if you fail three times on the way to your dream and you still gave it your best shot, then again, my advice would probably slightly change. It'd probably be something more like this. Pick yourself back up, dust yourself off, and try again. Glenn, what if I fell four times, or five times, or six times, or 11 times? Or, Glenn, what if I fell 114 times? What if I write 114 letters to all these big businesses asking them to sponsor my youth center and I get 114 no's? Okay, listen, if you get 114 no's like I get 114 no's, here's my advice to you. Do this. Pick yourself back up, dust yourself off, and try again. Why? Why? Because you don't ever give up on your dream. You don't ever quit, you don't ever surrender, you don't ever capitulate. Here's the deal. I shared you a little bit about my story, my cave experience. Let me give you some other cave experiences that people find themselves. I was recently um, reading the Washington Post, and here's what they said. A Japanese woman has barely seen her 25-year-old son in six years, yet they live in the same small house. He leaves his room only when he's sure his parents are asleep or out. She can tell when he's used the kitchen and knows when he goes into the living room to watch TV and use the computer at night. She has waited patiently for him to tire of his isolation. As many as a million Japanese, most of them young men, are considered shut-ins, either literally cloistered in their rooms or refusing to work and avoiding all contact. Many people think they suffer from depression, but most shut themselves up in the house with no signs of neurological or physical, uh, psychiatric disorder. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you don't have people threaten you or intimidate you or, or try and put you down, well, then you'll know what will, will tend to happen. Life will tend to threaten you and intimidate you and tell you that you can't. And just like that word came to Elijah, just like that word from a doctor came to me, if you are weak, you allow light to be down. So here's what I've learned about the devil. The devil, since he couldn't stop God from giving you life, then he's trying to take the life that God gave you. And he's trying to get you to live in apathy and indifference. And he's trying to get you to lose your confidence in your God-given mission. And if he can do that, then he's succeeded.
If he can do that, then he's actually won. I don't have time to talk to you about depression. Listen, by the year 2020, the World Health Organization said that depression will be the second leading cause of death and disability. You know what the first one will be? Road accidents. Then the second thing that will kill people will be depression. I was telling that some of the youth leaders earlier this week, Time magazine said two months ago that this generation of young people, this generation of young people is the most medicated generation of young people that have ever lived in the entire of humanity. Because if you add ADD to the equation, this is the most medicated generation that has ever lived. You know what I started asking the question? I started asking the question this. When did we stop raising kids and start medicating them? My wife and I battle with our eight-month-old because we get constant ads and and leaflets in the mail about how to give Nurofen to our eight-month-old child. Isn't it amazing? It's like... How can I break this down to you? It's like we, we try to bubble wrap them. We try and keep them safe so they don't fail. We need to teach them how to fail and fail well. In fact, top CEOs of major corporations, you know what they're trying to teach their young executives? They're teaching them this. Listen, if you're not failing, then you're not trying. In this highly technocratic society where everything is moving and accelerating, you better be failing. Failing is a part of the problem. We need to teach them how to fail. You see, we're so safe. You know what it was like back in our day? I had this swing in my backyard and it was, it was totally rusted out. And if you didn't hold it in the right place, it would pinch your skin. Today, we have playgrounds that have soft fall everywhere. That if the kids, so the kids can't even scratch themselves and learn about picking themselves back up. Remember back in the day where we used to run down um, to like the local park and we used to play as kids and we used to have those slippery slides? They used to burn your backside. <laughs> and if you didn't learn to lift yourself up and slide down on your elbows, then you get third degree burns. All those pyramids. But we don't have any, kids don't have anything like that because it's all about litigation. And it's, we've got to keep everyone safe. Remember, remember the day when we used to go down the park and um, our parents didn't even know where we were and we weren't contactable even by mobile phone. And everything was okay. Remember the days when we used to drink out of um, taps and hoses? Today, kids won't drink out anything unless they have a water bottle that they paid $1.50 for. (laughs) Safety, one of the major virtues. We need to teach our kids how to move out in faith and to believe God for the impossible. Because that's the God I read about here in the Bible. Let me tell you some other ways that you might have been pushed back in a cave. Domestic violence. Not just to mothers and, and fathers, but the kids see this. And the kids are backed up in a corner and they're too afraid to come out and they're too afraid to live. Listen to this. A 14-year-old Canadian girl said this. She committed suicide at 14. This upsets me because she actually hung herself, this 14-year-old girl. You imagine the rope, the, the tough, stringent rope around this girl's little soft neck. You know what she wrote in her suicide note? This is what she wrote. If I tried to get help, it would get worse. She was being bullied. If I ratted, then there would be no stopping them. 
So, so many people today are bullied, intimidated, told that, told that they can't do anything, told that they're hopeless, told that they're not pretty enough, told, told that they're not smart enough. I, I can't believe, even as I travel around our nation, especially in the year 2007, listen to me very carefully, parents, I can't believe as I coach and mentor young people right around um, as, as I speak, I can't believe how many teenagers today have actually never heard from a parent. Sons and daughters never heard from a father or a mother words like this. I'm so proud of you. I so believe in you. I bet if you set your mind to anything, you could accomplish anything that you set your mind to. Imagine if we grew up in an environment that was constantly affirming and constantly encouraging. Imagine if our kids grew up in, imagine what they'd think they were capable of actually achieving. And doing. I've made a commitment for my little baby girl here, Grace. I made a commitment the day she was born. I was going to tell her every single day. And not just when she's a baby. Not just when she's a teenager. Not even just when she's an adult. But all the way through her life, while there is breath in my lungs, no matter where I am on this planet, I will ring, I will do something, I will tell her how beautiful she is. And you know why? You know why? Because I know there is going to come a day when she turns 14 or 15 and some dirty little punk is going to come up to her and say, hey, baby, you're beautiful. How about it? She won't feel like she owes him something. She'll just go, I know I'm beautiful. My daddy tells me that every single day. <laughs> Let's try and build faith in our houses. That our kids grow up in faith-filled houses where they're not intimidated or stressed out, but they actually believe God at His Word, that God can actually bring them through, that they will fear no evil, for God is with them. They're capable of doing things beyond their even expectations and even beyond their potential, because that's where God actually wants to take us. Here's the deal. Let me give it to you like this. Um, can, can you just come? I've got, I got to rush. Uh, John, John, just come with me to cha- um, John, chapter, John chapter 10. John, John chapter 10, I'll bring this home for you Here, right now. John chapter 10 goes like this. I feel something in this place. John chapter 10 and verse 9 says this. Listen, and this is, this is JC. This is Jesus speaking. We know this because it's written in red. He says this. He says, listen, I am the door. Man, I've just preached. I could sit down right now because I've just preached to you. He says, I am the door. I, listen, for some strange reason, people think that Jesus is a box. That he's a prison designed to keep you tamed and domesticated. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not a box. I'm a door. I'm a door out of your cave. I am the door out. The pathway out is through me. He says, I am the door. And if anyone enters, listen to this. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Saved physically, emotionally, physically saved. And you will go in and find out and find pasture. Listen, he says, the thief does not come except to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. He's come to give you life. Now, 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 here's the deal. In First Peter, it says this, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
It's the roar of the lion that paralyzes its prey. And a deer that would normally have the agility and dexterity to run gets paralyzed. I'm telling you, the voice of the enemy has tried to silence you and has tried to keep you boxed up in a prison of doubt, in a dungeon of despair. And it's trying to lock you. If he can lock you in, then, then he silenced you. God wants to lead you out. Like I said at the beginning, it was the word. Oh, God, help me preach this. It was the word. It was a word of intimidation that pushed Elijah in, but it's a word of a promise that brought him out. The Bible says about the word of God, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That means it brings illumination, not to just where I am, but also to where I'm going. Then, then Isaiah said, The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Then Jeremiah said, Listen, he, he has put his words in my mouth. Do you realize that God's worth God's words in your mouth are just as powerful as his words in his mouth. Then John, John, the prophetic writer, writes this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and without him nothing came into being. In him was light, and the light was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God who was not that light, but sent to bear witness of that light, saying that one, there is one coming after me who is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to latch it. I will indeed baptize you with water but he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Then the word crescendos in verse 14 and it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what I want. I want the word to become flesh in my life. I want the word of God to manifest in my life and bring healing, bring deliverance, bring freedom. Here's the thing. The Bible says this. You sh- oh, can, I, can I bring this home? The Bible says this. You shall know the truth and the Truth shall set you free. Here's the deal. If the truth is setting you free, then that must mean it's a lie that's keeping you bound. And here's the lie. The lie is telling you that you're not smart enough, that you're not pretty enough, that you don't have the education, that you don't have what it takes. The lie is trying to keep you bound. And let me tell you something. Self-doubt was the first sin committed on this planet. Are you aware of that? The first sin committed on this planet was self-doubt. Here's what happened. Get ready for this. Satan said to Eve, if you eat this fruit, then you will be like God. Hang on a second. I thought she was already like God. Wasn't she made in his image? If the devil can get you to doubt your potential, then he's one. And he will keep you bound by self-doubt. Lastly, let me wind this up. In Romans it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That, that, that word messed me up for a long time. How can you love one brother and hate the other? They were twins. And what happened was this. You need to go into the backstory in Genesis. It talks about it. See, um, here's the thing. Jacob was a bit of a mummy's boy. He liked to cook and he liked to kind of dish out stuff and he, he, he liked to wear the apron in the kitchen. Whereas Esau was a savage hunter. And what happened was this, Esau was out hunting 
dragged back a wild deer, came to the kitchen, smelt that soup, that red lentil soup that Jacob was preparing, and said to him, hey, bro, man, this has been out hunting, man. I'm famished. Man, if I don't eat something, I'm going to die. Give me, give, me, give me what you got there. Hey, listen, I'll give you whatever if you just give me that soup. Jacob saw an opportunity. He said, listen, you mean you'll give me anything? And Esau said, yeah, what, what good is anything that I own if I die right now? You see, he let his lust for the momentary pleasure get in the way. And do you know what Jacob said? He said, I want your birthright. Because Esau was a twin that came out first. So he got the birthright. You know what Esau said? He said, what good is a birthright to me if I die? And he handed over his birthright. You know why the Bible says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated? Because Esau treated his birthright with indifference. He treated the potential and gifts and talents of God had placed in him with, I could care less, God. I could care less about what you've given me. I'm just going to do my own thing. Indifferent, apathetic towards the gifting that God had placed on the inside of him. Let me tell you about what your gift looks like. It looks like a tiny seed. You know what you have to do with that tiny seed? You have to do this. You have to take that tiny seed and you have to plant it in good soil. What does that mean? You have to put it in a good environment, around good youth pastors, around a good church, around good mentors, good edu- people that will bring out the goodness that's in that seed. Then what do you have to do? You have to, you, you have to tend it, turn over the soil. You have to work. What does that mean? Practice, train, study, rehearse. Practice, train, st- You have to work on that gift. Then what do you have to do? You have to keep pulling out the weeds. What are the weeds? The weeds are doubt, negativity, fear. They try and come and choke that tree. Then what do you have to do? You have to wait for that tree to grow. You have to be patient. Faith and patience. Faith and patience. Faith. And, you have to wait for that tree to grow so that you can sit under the shade, pick the fruit, eat it, and be fulfilled. But so many people treat their gift with insignificance and they throw it aside. Do you know that out of one seed can not just come a tree, but can come a forest? You know what successful people are able to do? Successful people are able to see enormous possibility in the tiny They're able to see with the eyes of God, the Father. I pray that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened so that you may know what the hope of his calling is towards you. Oh, somebody, 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 somebody. Let me wind this up. I believe that there are people in this place right now who are caught up in a cave. Let me tell you something as clearly as I possibly can, and I'm prophesying here tonight. I believe that God brought me from Sydney to Hastings to say this. Not another day in your cave. Tonight, you're coming out. Tonight, you are going to hear, you've heard a word from God that has told you that you are now a spot, start to, uh, need to start acting like princes and princesses and kings and queens of the Most High God. You are, this is not a time for you to live like paupers or to live like slaves. You need to understand that this word, He, he died for this word so that you might, He redeemed you from the curse of the law so that you might live a life that is full and abundant, not apathetic, not laxant, not indifferent. Bam. His blood is all over this book because he died for you to live a life that's full. How dare you live a life that is so far below what God has called you to do. Whatever talent you have, God is yet to create a person, not put a talent or gift on the inside of him. Hey, listen to me very carefully. You don't have to be the next Nelson Mandela. You know what you could be? You could be the mother or the father of the next Nelson Mandela. 
Your dream does, please don't misunderstand, your dream doesn't have to be great compared to what everyone else thinks is great. Sometimes it's about raising great kids. Put in your heart and soul and not complaining, but blessing God for the gifts that he's given you. Here's the deal. You got to put your life in God's hands. Listen to this. If I was to put a basketball in, if you have to put a, a basketball in my hand, that basketball's worth a little. I can play a little bit of ball. But here's the thing. You put that same basketball in the hands of Michael Jordan, and now that basketball is worth around about $120 million a year. You put a golf club in my hand, golf club is probably, if you bought it for five bucks, in my hand, it's probably worth about $2.50. But you put that same golf club in the hands of Tiger Woods, and now it's worth $230 million a year. Put a computer in my hand. You know what? I can do something with computers. I can create. I can work. I can build. I, I can do stuff with computers. Put a computer in my hand. It's worth something. Put that same computer in the hand of Bill Gates. And now that same computer that was in my hands, but now is in his hands, is now worth a staggering $4,936 a second. <laughs> Put your life in God's hands and watch him multiply it and amplify it and grow you into a life that is adventurous and a life that is full.